Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so, Jason, I think you nailed the direction with the songs. So I think we'll, we're same thought process and same direction here. Um, like what was said, we're going to be looking at verses 10 and 11 in Second Peter chapter 1. Um, I think it's helpful just to emphasize again why this section is so valuable and so powerful. Um, for me personally, um, if you were to ask me like what section of God's word has helped me the most, it would be Second Peter 1, 1 through 11. God has brought me out of some very dark places, um, sin that I was very enslaved to, habits that I needed to get out of, because of just renewing perspective on not only the promises that are given here, but the method of faith that God outlines very simply, very concisely in this section. And as valuable as everything has been so far, really it's these last two verses that became the reason why in my past I've planted myself on this section so firmly before. And remember that it's back previously in verse 4, he says, it's by precious promises that we partake in the divine nature. This section of scripture has precious and magnificent promises where if we anchor ourselves on these promises, we will continue to share in the divine nature, which I just noticed I've spelt wrong on the board there. Um, but we'll share in the divine nature. We will grow internally, grow externally. God will make us fruitful and effective to use us for his purpose. And God will abundantly supply us an entrance into his kingdom. So we're going to finish the lesson looking at these last two verses. And I'll just read these last two verses and jump right into the lesson here. But for the lesson, we're going to be looking at two points from verse 10, and then we'll make one concluding point from verse 11. So verse 10 and 11, if you'll read that with me. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So the first thing I want to look at again and it, it might seem very repetitive to keep, keep emphasizing this point, but it's repetitive in Second Peter. Not only is it mentioned twice that we are to be diligent or make every effort in our faith, in chapter 3, as Peter is concluding this letter, he again emphasizes, okay, so be diligent in seeking God because of things that are uh, said and warnings that are given. But I want to approach this maybe from a little bit of a different angle um, for this lesson. Why is diligence urged so often? So what we could say is, well, okay, it says be diligent again, and so let's be diligent. Diligence is important. Now, diligence is important, but again, I think it's also important to think why. Why is this urged so frequently? I think there's two things. The first thing, how I think and respond to truth doesn't change its nature or its value. And there's something about this that I think motivates diligence, but just maybe as an illustration for this, how I think in response to truth does not change its nature or its value. If you think about the way that the earth is round, right? It's circular, it's a sphere. There's a lot of people who believe that the earth is totally flat still, right? There's like a community called flat earthers. Um, sorry if you are here and you, you believe that, but evidence clearly suggests that the earth is round, right? that it's a sphere. So someone may believe that it's flat, 
but reality and evidence clearly shows that it's still, it's still as round as it's ever been, no matter how strongly someone might believe that. Think about it with mathematics. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, you can say 3 plus 2 equals 4, and you can be passionate about that, and you can make a big deal out of it, but in the end, 3 plus 2 still equals 5, right? So how I think about truth, how I respond to it, ultimately doesn't actually have the power to change its nature or its value. And secondarily, how I respond to truth is what actually demonstrates what I really believe about its nature and its value. So John would say this in 1 John chapter 2, that if somebody says, I know him, but they don't keep his commandments, they are a liar and the truth is not in them. Because ultimately how I respond to the truth, what I'm doing with truth, is what actually demonstrates what I believe about it, both its nature and its value. And I think it's important to see how Jesus illustrates this in Luke 13. And I think this continues to portray the importance. Why is it so important that we're diligent? And as you're turning to Luke 13, really the main point we're going to get to, how I respond to the value of God's promises doesn't change its true value. I may treat God's promises like they're not as important or as valuable as a lot of other things that I might assign value to or pursue diligence towards. But that still doesn't change that the kingdom is still worth more than anything else that I pursue, anything else that I assign value to. And ultimately, God will judge us on the basis of value I have invested in his grace and in his kingdom and in his promises. Look at Luke 13, 22 through 30. And this is, again, dealing with whether or not somebody is responding to the truth in a way that aligns with its value, with its nature. Luke chapter 13, 22 through 30. He was passing through one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west, and from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So, in verse 23, Jesus is ultimately responding to this question. It seems like a really good question. Are there just a few who are being saved? And I think it's fascinating how Jesus approaches responding to this question. I think the first thing to notice in the parable he tells, what deceived the people who were cast out? Because if you notice, back in verse 25, these are people who Jesus said they're seeking, and they seem to know about the Lord, and they seem to think that they are connected with him and familiar with him, but Jesus didn't share that perspective. So he says at the end of verse 25, I don't know where you're from. And in verse 26, do you notice how close they were to Jesus? 
They say, how do you not know us? We were literally in the streets you taught in. We were literally sitting at the table eating food with you. How do you not know who we are? And he affirms to them, I'm telling you the truth. I really have no idea who you are. You need to get away from me. Look again at verse 26. What deceived those who were cast out? It was how close they were to Jesus without internalizing his teaching. You know, there's an inherent danger in being close to God. We see that in the Old Testament with Israel, right? That these are people who are very close to God in some sense, but really within their hearts, they were farther away from God than even the Gentile nations that surrounded them. And so why is it so important that we're urged to be diligent It's because the closer we get to God, in a sense, the easier it can be to be deceived and not realize the urgency that we still need to apply to growing and pursuing God. So these people were deceived because they were close enough to settle and be content, but they weren't actually applying the teaching. And I think you notice something very important here. I think Jesus actually exposes that this question might seem good, but he was asking the wrong question. So Jesus confirms in verse 24, really if you want to boil it down to a yes or no question, are there just a few being saved? Verse 24, he says, yes, that's right. But notice the pronouns that are used starting in verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and they begin to stand outside, says, no, you begin to stand outside. And then look at the end of verse 25. He will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. Verse 27, he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And then look at the end of verse 28, but yourselves being thrown out. So do you notice how Jesus turns his question around? It's as if Jesus is saying, you know what, the issue isn't so much whether or not there's a few people out there somewhere who are going to be saved. What you really need to be worried about is whether or not you are going to be saved. This is really important. Um, Didn't mean to go forward yet. Sorry, let me uh, catch back up. This is really important because I think it clarifies something that we really need to understand. Hearing convicting sermons will not get us into the kingdom of heaven. Organizing, on my part, studying for a sermon will not justify me in the end. Um, You know, it can be easy for me even to um, struggle with jealousy with people that I know are more effective, uh, more engaging, just better speakers in general than me, right? Um, And I appreciate listening to sermons that I feel I connect with and are very engaging and, to me, very convicting, right? But you know what's just not possible? I will never be able to teach like Jesus. I will never be able to teach as good or lessons as convicting as Jesus. But, you know, people were not justified because of hearing Jesus' sermons. People weren't justified because they literally sat at a table and ate food and talked with him. 
You know what justified people? Is when they heard his words and applied them and were convicted by them. So you know what we all need to do mutually? It's not just hearing about these qualities that will justify us. It's taking them and it's applying them. And that equalizes every one of us. We are all in mutual need to apply the things that Jesus taught. So if you look at verse 27, I think this also gets to the heart of why they were deceived. The humility of faith sees value and encouragement in holding heart-piercing convictions that lead to change. The humility of faith sees value and encouragement in holding heart-piercing convictions that lead to change. You notice he says, Depart from me, all you evildoers. They were hearing things that Jesus was teaching to humble them and bring them low. And why does Jesus become more personal in his response and say, you need to not assume that you're a part of the few. You should actually assume that you're going to be thrown out of the kingdom and watch as all of these other people come from the north, south, east, and west and they get in the kingdom and you suffer weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what was necessary was words that could help humble the heart to pierce it, convict it, and cause it to change. You know, there can be an inherent struggle too of, you know, we come to the assembly and when we're hearing sermons, you're constantly having like this perfect standard held up to you. And that can almost become discouraging because it's like, oh, I'm going to go get slapped on the head again when I hear a sermon from God's word. You know, Jesus would unapologetically teach really hard things, things meant to be very convicting. You know what kind of people, though, loved that teaching? Turn to Luke chapter 15, at the beginning of Luke 15. Luke 14, Jesus concludes saying even harder things than what we just read in Luke 13. It's where he says you need to hate father, mother, brother, sister. Yes, even your own life, or you can't be his disciple. You know there's an irony that it's people like the Pharisees who would never let Jesus' words humble them, who were most hostile and withdrawn from him. But look at chapter 15, verse 1. After Jesus says these hard things, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. That leads us into the next point, as Jason alluded to, making our calling and election sure. Before we move on, just remember the first four Beatitudes. This is as fundamental as it gets. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, who are impacted by sin and its reality and its devastation, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, people who are open to learning and changing, people whose hearts have been pierced, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So how does this relate to making certain our calling and election or God's choosing us? I want to think about what this statement means. If you turn back to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, if you notice at the beginning of verse 10, there is a therefore statement. So I kind of have to like go back to Cody's lesson from last week with verse 9. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, 
Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So the therefore statement is pointing back to saying, you can be deceived to the point where you forget what God has done for you fundamentally. You can forget your purification from your former sins. You can become short-sighted and not see the way that God is trying to lead you from that condition. And I think it would be helpful if we consider both a negative example and a positive example of what this looks like. I want to start with Israel again and their failure in Ezekiel chapter 16. I'll put these verses on the board um, for the sake of time and moving through the point. But in Ezekiel 16, Israel is pictured by God as an illustration of their relationship as a woman that he entered into a covenant with. And this woman who he entered into a covenant with, he took care of her, he uh, saved her from dying in her youth, she was squirming as a baby in her blood, abandoned in a field. He took her, he washed her, he clothed her, he raised her, he adorned her, he made her glorious, he made her beautiful. He entered into a marriage covenant with her and she became great and famous. But then she ended up becoming a prostitute who would pay other people, which was illustrating Israel's relationship to other nations and other idols, she would pay others to come and have relations with her. And in Ezekiel 16, verse 22, he says, And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after God outlines how devastating the relationship has become, he again reflects, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. If you not committed lewdness, lewdness in addition to all your abominations. Why did Israel get into the condition they were in in Ezekiel's day? where Babylon was sent to destroy the city, where they became a nightmare of corruption. They wouldn't listen to God. There was nothing God could do but destroy them. It's because they did not make their calling and election sure. And just to see how God was clear about their need to remember, back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when they were on the border of Canaan, this land that they were in, in Ezekiel's day, that God was about to rip them out of, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, he's telling them, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to celebrate the Sabbath day. So every Saturday, Israel was supposed to keep the Sabbath, not just as something to do to take a break, but to remember where did God take them from and keep their identity rooted in that context. And for Deuteronomy 15, when it's talking about the Passover, it says, And you are to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I am commanding this of you today. Israel was to never forget where God called them out of, and it's only when they would remember what God had done for them at the beginning that they would be able to thrive and grow in their relationship with him unhindered. So consider Paul's example of faith in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 22, or 17 through 22. So Israel, they were told to remember where they came from, and that was to help them grow and thrive in God's mercy and be a light to the nations around them. But they catastrophically failed. 
Now look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, 17 through 22. I think this is a section of the letters to Timothy that is easy to overlook. But the longer I meditate on 1 Timothy and think about the things that are written here, the more apparent it is that this section is meant to be the cornerstone of all of the instructions that come after. 17 through 22. Uh, I'm sorry, 12 through 17. I'm not sure how I ended up with 17 through 22. 12 through 17. I thank Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Did Paul ever forget where he came from? Did Paul ever forget his need for mercy? Notice especially verse 15 and the latter statement of the verse. So he talks about what kind of people was Jesus sent to choose? What kind of people does God call? He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Righteous people, good people, people whose lives have just some troubles or some habits that they want to get out of. And once they get out of those habits, you know, everything's pretty well done. So as Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the next statement he makes about himself, is it in the past tense or is it in the present? I don't think Paul, when he's saying, of whom I am foremost, I don't think he's invalidating the fact that he's a forgiven person, that he has been redeemed. You see all throughout this section how he's exalting the mercy of God and the love that is in Christ. But it's that this is what diligent obedience of faith leads to. That not only do I appreciate where I've come from, I understand better than I ever have before how desperately I am in need of God's mercy. This is what motivated and rooted Paul's zeal. You know what's really encouraging to me? When I meet older brethren, and I mean like much, much older, and instead of becoming just self-righteous or complacent, that you can tell that what their obedience of faith has resulted in is a deeper humility, a matured love for God, a greater dependence on his grace, more amazement and awe at his work. This is Paul's life. And think about how important it is that before he gets into men and women's roles, elders, deacons, and those other things, that what first Paul is concerned with with Timothy is, Timothy, don't you ever forget your calling and election. Because if you ever forget where you came from, 
if you look at the end of the chapter, you have people like Hymenaeus and Alexander who suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Do you know why brethren fall away? Why preachers fall away? They don't make their calling or their election sure, and they aren't diligent about it. Do you know why you won't be diligent to pursue these qualities in Second Peter? It is because you've forgotten your purification from your former sins, and you've become blind or short-sighted. I think something that's important to emphasize here as well, and I think this is especially helpful to emphasize to new Christians, we're not bound together with God and our fellowship with one another because of how put together we are, because our will is so strong, because we're able to busy ourselves as much as possible with righteous activity. We're bound together with God by our brokenness, our mutual need for mercy and for love, our need for patience. Notice at the end of 1 Timothy 1, verse uh, 16, what was Paul chosen to demonstrate? You know, Paul can easily become an impersonal example, like, I'll never be like Paul. He's too amazing. He's too put together. You know, it just seems like he's like a fairy tale figure. How could somebody even think like that or live like that? And Paul emphasizes he wasn't chosen to intimidate us by how good a life he could live, but to be an example for Jesus Christ to demonstrate his long suffering to us. So if we'll make our calling and election sure, if we're, we will be diligent in pursuing these things in faith, verse 10 promises in the end of, the end of verse 10 and verse 11 Some of the most amazing things that I think, again, encourage us to anchor ourselves in this text. I want to start with, he says, if you practice these things, you will never stumble. And what that means. Cody's emphasized that statement a little bit. But something that's helped me in the past with that phrase in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, if you practice these things, you will never stumble. This has helped me immensely. When I know that I sinned and that I was led by my own lusts and I chose to sin, what has really helped me is remembering this promise and remembering choosing to sin is never the result of diligently practicing these things. And the reason why I allowed myself to be led by my own lust was because I chose to move in a completely different direction than what's outlined in this section of Scripture. And so choosing to sin is never the result of diligently practicing these things. Why is that important? Because that has encouraged me to renew my perspective and fortify my faith and realize it's not that God's promises have failed. It's that I need to be more diligent to fortify this weak area in my faith and be more on guard, be more aware, and bring God into this blind spot in my faith and pursue God all the more diligently. And if you'll do that, just watch as God fulfills his promises. But I think also, look at Psalm 32, verses 3 through 7. This is such an encouraging psalm that's quoted in Romans chapter 4 when it's talking about the nature of faith that binds us together with God and how we're bound to him in our brokenness. Look at Psalm 32, verses 3 through 7. 
And this is with the point that we can have assurance that if we are diligently striving to serve God, we are genuinely trying to grow, God will work to help convict us and restore us when there's sin in our life. Look at Psalm 32, verses 3 through 7. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Listen, I think something that Second Peter really confronts us with is too often we underestimate God's power, his providence, his intimacy with us. You think about David and one of his more famous sins with Bathsheba. Was God just going to let David freely get away with what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite? No, God worked to convict him and restore him. Look at the next verses that I don't have the board, verse 8 and 9. So this is an interjection, it seems, from God, kind of reflecting after David says these things. It seems as if God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them a check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Do you know why brethren fall away or why preachers fall away? It's not because God hasn't worked to convict them. It's not that God hasn't given them opportunity to be restored. It's that they have had to abandon and turn a blind eye to the gracious work of God to convict them of what they had done and turn them to repentance. Nobody falls away without God working to convict and restore them. And that will condemn them in the judgment. It's God's grace. It's the abundant supply. It's his fervent working that in order to continue in sin, we must turn a blind eye to it. And so in the psalm, not only are we encouraged in verse 6, God is forgiving. God is quick to forgive. Therefore, let everyone who's godly pray to you when you may be found. And God interjects and gives a warning and says, yes, there's that encouragement, but be careful that you aren't like a dumb animal that has to be beaten and pulled on forcefully or it's never going to come to you. We need to treat God with greater reverence. We need to be careful that we don't rob God of credit and glory for what he's willing and able to do. So I want to finish the lesson thinking about how does God abundantly supply an entrance? So I think that relates to how we'll never stumble, that God is working to protect us. God is working to convict us when we've sinned. God is working to restore us when we've sinned. But how does God abundantly supply an entrance into his kingdom? And I want to focus on how I think this is a present promise as much as it is a future promise. Think about the rich young ruler as an illustration of this. Do you remember when Jesus told them, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. The disciples after that said, Lord, well, we've left everything and followed you. And he said, nobody who has left father, mother, brother, sisters, wife, and children, yes, even his own household or land, 
will not receive many times as much now in the coming age eternal life. So I think as much as this is a future promise, it is a present promise as well. And I think the first thing to think about, how does God, for somebody diligently pursuing him, again, this is promises conditionally reserved for people who are placing their faith in God's promises with diligence. I think primarily God blesses them with growing Christ-centered relationships with brethren. Why do people fall away from the Lord? Why do brethren fall away? Why do preachers fall away? They need to throw away relationships they've built that are Christ-centered and protective to keep us aware of our weakness and sin. I've never seen, not even once, somebody fall away from God without their brethren reaching out to them, without brethren trying to come and meet with them face-to-face and have a conversation with them. The sign of somebody spiritually dying is always isolation. They don't want to talk to brethren. They don't want to hear any correction from brethren. They just want to be left alone and live their life. And if that's the case, God will let them have what they want. But if somebody is diligently pursuing God, the quality and the safety and the relationships that come by applying faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and finally love, the relationships that God will abundantly bless through those things will bring us joy and peace and safety in our faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 16-18, at the end of Paul's life, I think he says this same promise in different words, personal words. But I think another way that God abundantly supplies us entrance into his kingdom is we're able to see his power and we learn to comprehend that God has the power to use and change every obstacle in my life for a purpose for him to receive glory and for the purpose of being joined into that glory. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 16-18 At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me and from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I think another way of illustrating this, um, so Paul the apostle here, he could see that God was using every situation to bring him closer to the kingdom, that God would use every situation for the deliverance and the safety of his soul, eventually granting him entrance into the kingdom. But Eva and John, um, their brother Dan, he lives in West Africa, in a very third world part of that country. Um, He recently got malaria and dengue fever, And you probably know malaria is like life-threatening and uh, really dangerous. Well, dengue fever on top of that is another life-threatening feverish illness, right? His wife is pregnant. They have a toddler. They're in a place without good medical systems. Um, And he almost died recently. Well, he uh, yesterday gave an update on just how he's doing in tears And he referenced a hymn 
Jesus, draw me ever nearer. And in the midst of tears, he said, I know that through these things, God is inching me closer to his kingdom. So it's not just that we know that God is able to use every obstacle and every tragedy, every difficulty, no matter how small it may seem or how major, but we have growing joy in God's work to prune our lives, to prune our hearts, to prune our life through suffering, to refine our focus, to help us to focus less on worldly things that are temporary, to have less focus on our own lusts and desires, and to prioritize more the grace of God, the realities of his kingdom, Christ in him crucified, the hope of the resurrection. So God is able to abundantly supply us entrance into his kingdom because of the joy that he gives through his providential work in our lives. You think about with Jesus in John 15, where he's saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he says, I've said these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The joy of the Lord becomes our strength when we're diligently pursuing his promises by faith. And I think finally, and the greatest thing of all that God does, is he grants us a growing knowledge, comprehension, and understanding of who he is, his character, his work, having expectations like Paul in 2 Timothy 4 that God is so near to me, his love is so fervent, God is so faithful and committed, there's nothing I'll suffer that God won't use to bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. There's no tragedy I can suffer, there's no difficulty I can suffer that God won't deliver me from. And this creates growing anticipation to be with him. The greatest gift that God can give us of all is a deeper understanding of who he is. Jesus would say in John chapter 17, verse 3, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. God can abundantly grant us understanding, comprehension, and conviction of the glory of his character in ways that keep us safe, that keep us focused, that keep us humble, that keep us motivated. And if that's where we'll plant ourselves, these promises are absolute. And just at the beginning of the lesson, what you believe about these promises, how you respond to them, does not change the reality of their power, their nature, and their value. These promises are proven true through Paul, through Peter, through John, through the church we read of in the book of Acts. No matter how we respond, these things are worthy of all diligence. And I commend that to you. I hope these lessons have been an encouragement to you. I hope they've been both deeply convicting, but also deeply motivating. I pray that God help us to apply these things and continue to abound in the knowledge of his glory together. If there's anything we can do for you at this time, uh, we encourage you to bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.